I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. My name is Alice Dreger, and I think history tells us good and evil are not simple. and welcome to Spokes. We're in a new year and a new lockdown, so I thought with the lockdown that we'd start the introduction for today's episode in the outdoors. So we're going outside here in the countryside in County Wicklow. We're going to actually bring the dogs for the walk so you can hear the birds in the background and everything. Mucky sound effects. This is Terry Hackett. He is the co-producer of the podcast. I usually present it, but Terry is really behind the scenes. He's now the person carrying the microphone as we're walking. We started Spokes in January of 2020 with the aim that we would record interviews on location and in environments with really rich soundscapes, interviewing lots of interesting people. But then COVID happened, so our plans for that went down the drain. And... We adapted by going online. This had advantages and disadvantages. The brilliant advantage was that we could then interview people who were located far away from us. And today's interview, you'll hear shortly, is with one of these people. It's with um, a woman named Alice Drager. Just to explain, sorry, we're, we're passing sheep now that are in a, a barn and they think we're the farmers with food for them. But of course we don't have any food so we keep walking. The field is very mucky in this part. So today's guest is Alice Drager. As I said, I recorded this interview online a few days ago. Alice is a New Yorker, but she now lives in the city of... East Lansing in Michigan in the United States. She earned her PhD in the history of philosophy and science and researched primarily the history of the treatment of people who are born with sex anomalies. They used to be called hermaphrodites, but now they call themselves uh, intersex, which is their preferred term. 
This led to her involvement in the Intersex Society of North America. And she became heavily involved in that society where they campaigned to stop genital surgeries in babies born with what were considered to be socially inappropriate genital variations, such as large clitorises, which were often amputated. From there, she went on to write this book, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists and One Scholar's Search for Justice. Today's podcast is going to start with me asking Alice about an article that she wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education, where she talks about why she left her university post in Northwestern University, primarily, oh, we can hear a tractor in the background now. Uh, Okay, okay, well, if I talk over it, do you think they'll... Yep, yep. So it's, it's why she left her university post in the Northwestern University's medical school in Chicago, primarily over an incident of fellatio. In other words, a blowjob. Yeah, that's the article called Take Back the Ivory Tower. Yes. It's an extraordinary story where you were censored by the dean of the the college yeah yeah for publishing a a William Peace's story about his own life he was a disability scholar and a cultural anthropologist and he was um, paralyzed from the waist down at the age of 18 and he told the story of being in a rehabilitation hospital which was a long-term rehabilitation hospital in the 70s during the sexual revolution the drug revolution and it was a very experimenty kind of place for some people and um, he ended up in a relationship with a nurse where she gave him a blowjob in order to assure him that his um, sexuality still worked because he was depressed and worried and scared that it wasn't working. It wasn't going to work and that he'd never have a sex life. And, you know, an 18 year old person wants to know they're going to have a sex life and he wanted to be a father someday. So she did this to reassure him. And he talks about it as an act of compassion. And he wrote about it. And uh, in a piece we amusingly called head nurses um, or head nurse <laughs> singular, I think it was. Um, and it was such a powerful piece. It made me cry every time I read it. This was not a piece that was a pornographic piece by any means. It was a, it was a piece that was about disability, sexuality, and compassion. And he was not advocating that this happened in the medical system. He was writing about it as what he called the wild west of rehabilitation medicine in the 1970s. And after we published it, I heard from a lot of other men and women who had been in the systems at the time telling me they had had similar experiences. And some of them had gotten married, um, medical professionals with patients had gotten married to each other and had long relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Not that you have to do that after sex, but that had happened for some of them. And the dean uh, got upset about this and decided to censor it completely. And um, to the credit of the editor-in-chief of the periodical where we had published it, she decided to actually pull offline all of the issues of the magazine. But she didn't. She and the rest of the team wouldn't say why it had suddenly disappeared. And it was very difficult for me to stay quiet because it was just after Galileo's middle finger had come out. And I really felt like a hypocrite because... I was being censored. I was told not to talk about it. And I was afraid to talk about it because I was afraid some of my colleagues would get fired and they needed the health insurance. My health insurance was coming from my husband's job. I didn't have to worry about that. 
I was still going to have a roof over my head, but I was afraid for my colleagues. But I was really angry because it was completely stupid to be censored over this and to have everybody living in terror from this stupid dean whose name is Eric Nielsen, who's still the dean of Northwestern's medical school. Um, And so finally, after 15 months, my colleague, Christy Kirshner, who is a rehabilitation medicine physician and had written another piece in the same issue about women with disabilities and their sexuality. There was a great piece. She resigned in protest and I resigned not long after her in protest. And we just made it public and said, this was intolerable. And Bill went public also about the censorship of his work. And um, Bill died last year um, of a bed sore, which happens to people with paralysis. Um, that it was very tragic to lose him. He was not much older than me and a real loss. He was a great scholar and a great person. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm. So yes, the joke in my family, well, the joke with my husband that we've told each other for years is I wasn't even involved in the blow job, but if I had been, I probably would have gotten a promotion. So (laughs) (laughs) it's the kind of joke you can't really make in academia anymore. So it's a good thing I'm not in academia right now. Sorry, that's great. Um, I I mean, there's so much I love about Galileo's middle finger and I I want to get into a few different things. But one thing that I noticed today, which I hadn't really noticed before, was that it was dedicated to Kepler. (laughs) What's that about? Most people think that's Johannes Kepler. Um, because Johannes Kepler was uh, a Copernican, as was Galileo. And so most people assume that that's a reference to Johannes Kepler, who was is less well known in the history of science than Galileo or than um, somebody like Copernicus, but is fond to those of us who lived in history of science because he was somebody who was really, truly a person trying to grasp the entire universe. He was interested in music and law and history, as well as being very interested in physics and math. And so he's very admirable as somebody who tried really hard to understand the beauty of the whole universe. So he's kind of a hero for those of us who are in the humanities looking at science, because he's sort of one of us in some ways. But the truth is that dedication uh, exists because my son's name is Kepler, and the book is actually dedicated to my son. <laughs> wow. And I don't, oh my God. I, now that he's uh, 20 years old, I admit pe- that to people because he's an adult now and he doesn't mind that I tell people that that is in fact dedicated to him. And people who had read my earlier works figured it out because uh, my second book was also dedicated to Kepler. My second book was about conjoined twins. And the dedication of that book is to Kepler more separate and more connected each day. And that was a reference to our relationship as mother and son. But uh, yeah, I often... I often tell people, and it's really true, my son and Galileo's middle finger grew up together. So the book that is Galileo's middle finger, as you can tell, took years and years of living and then years of writing to complete. And that was a very formative period for my son. So when I started the work on that book, he was seven years old. And when it was published, he was 15 years old. And so those very formative years for him, I often say that they were sort of twins growing up together in the sense that I was working out all these intellectual problems and these social problems and trying to understand the world and trying to understand humanity at the same time he was doing that, but from the point of view of somebody who was a developing human in that period of his life. So did you call your name, your son after Kepler? We did. Um, We did. And... (laughs) It's funny because uh, 
people think he was named after a telescope. <laughs> I have to explain to people that the telescope was named after Johannes Kepler, but it also postdates my son. My son was named before the telescope. What was fun is we took him to the launch of the telescope. He was a little kid when the Kepler um, telescope launched. And so we were able to take him to Florida to the launch, which was really exciting. But um, part of the reason we chose the name was that we were looking at names in history of science. And I really loved Johannes Kepler as a person. But then my my husband decided to do what in politics is called opposition research, which is when you you look at your own candidate to figure out if there's something buried in their history that you better know, because we didn't want a situation where we found out later that Johannes Kepler turned out to be a terrible person and we had named our son Kepler. And so in researching this, my husband discovered that Johannes Kepler had saved his mother from being burned as a witch. And my husband said, oh, that's the name we need. <laughs> and so the... Um, I believe the dedication of Galileo's middle middle finger actually reads to Kepler who saved his mother. And with that's really a reference to is not just the, the analogy of Johannes Kepler, but it's really about the way in which my son allowed me to focus on the relationship with him as a respite from what I was living. And the meaning that I drew from having him in my life and having him to learn with me the world allowed me to survive what I was going through. And I I actually wrote about that in a blog later, which is um, a blog at my website called St. Francis Walking to Her Car. And it's about Francis Kelsey, who discovered that or blew the whistle that thalidomide, um, a sedative that was being given to people, including pregnant women, was causing massive birth defects. And Francis Kelsey the the truth about so this the myth about Francis Kelsey Kelsey is she discovered this everybody agreed with her and she was hailed as a hero John F Kennedy actually gave her a medal I think the Presidential Medal of Freedom that's the, that's the great mythical story right you do the right thing and everybody says you're great and the president recognizes you and everybody loves you but the truth of what Francis Kelsey lived is that she was considered an upstart at the FDA and a troublemaker and after. She did blow the whistle on thalidomide. Some people felt she was kind of the nail that was sticking up and they looked to hammer her down somewhat. And so it's a story about having talked to her daughter, Francis Kelsey's daughter, about a story that I had heard about Francis Kelsey, which was that after she did all of that, they didn't punish her, but they gave her a parking spot much farther away (laughs) so that she would have to walk alone every day farther. And it's a kind of interesting, cruel punishment, right? It's a cruel form of torture. And her daughter's not sure it's true, but I liked the idea of it being true because I liked the notion of the way that the world punishes you as a woman trying to blow a whistle. And so it's a blog I wrote about that, about St. Francis walking to her car. And one of the things that her daughter told me, because my son was still relatively young when, when all this was happening, and I talked to Francis Kelsey's daughter, I asked her, so what was it like going through this sort of hell when your mother was going through all this hell of sort of people having pressure on her and then her becoming very famous very suddenly? What was that like? And her daughter's response was, well, you know, she was my mom. So I just expected her to be mom throughout it. And and I realized that for me, I had done the same thing. I had figured my son just expects me to be his mother. And there was a tremendous amount of respite in that, a huge amount of knowledge that no matter what else I did, I had to survive because I had this kid and I had to keep him alive. And therefore, I had to persevere. 
And so I refer to St. Francis walking to her car because to me, Francis Kelsey is this patron saint of my own work. Um, so that's, that's how you get to that dedication. Um, that is to Kepler who saved his mother, because I really feel Kepler's Kepler actually saved his mother. He came back when she was being tried as a witch and he basically got her off on a technicality. They had tortured her incorrectly, which is horrifying. And he had, walked, he had done a scholarly look at the rules of torture. He actually, in a very scholarly fashion, went through the case and functioned as her lawyer as a scholar. And so it was very beautiful to me what he did in terms of the way that he brought reason to bear in a in a situation that completely lacked reason, right? Comple- was completely about tribalism and misogyny and madness of a church and all of the rest of it. I thought he, he just did such a beautiful thing that any of us would be proud to do as scholars. You mentioned there um, about women who are whistleblowers. Do you think it's different for men who are whistleblowers? No, not really. I've, I've now come to know a lot of whistleblowers because of the work that I did. And, um, in, in fact, I mean, you probably know that I now run a small newspaper for the town I live in, which is East Lansing, Michigan, in the United States. And um, the, I came to that by accident because I was troubled by the way that journalism was fading everywhere. And in, in my hometown, I could see that nobody was watching what our government was doing. And so I sort of accidentally started a newspaper that then became successful. And so now it's a citizen news brigade. Um, but one of the stories that I covered was the story of a whistleblower at our wastewater treatment plant. So that's the place where stormwater and sewage water goes to a plant and they clean it and they put it back into our river. And this was a man whose name is Troy Williams. And he and a group of other workers were exposed to mercury and asbestos, friable asbestos at the plant. So threatening their own health. And he blew the whistle on it. Um, and I ended up tracking the story of him and the other workers for years. And our city actually ended up firing him in spite of the fact that multiple public agencies said he was right and, and brought fines to bear on our city and condemned our city for various things. The man was fired. And his nickname is Smiley because he's a really upbeat person. And he re- somehow remained really upbeat through this. But I have to say that watching his course of his life as a whistleblower was just like watching a woman. He kept believing that truth was going to protect him. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is this is this blue collar pipe mechanic at our wastewater treatment plant. And he absolutely reminds me of Galileo. He absolutely believes that if we just keep telling the truth to enough people, that somehow rationality will win. And he was wrong. (laughs) Like we're all so wrong about rationality. He has another job now working for um, a company that's a good company. That's a utility company. Um, And we talk to each other every now and then, but his experience absolutely convinced me that no, it's not about gender. It's about having a particular personality type that is weirdly optimistic and yet perseveres, (laughs) just thinks you're going to be okay, even when you're not going to be okay. So it's kind of like the, the the thing that has driven you maybe in, in all of this is the quest for, for truth as well. Uh, sorry, not as well, but to fearlessly expose things that people do not want to see. 
I admire people who do that, yes. And so a lot of my work is about trying to document what happens to people who do that and trying to seek justice for them because the kill- the, the expression killing the messenger is such a universal. The idea of you know assaulting the person who's bringing the bad news is just such a universal in human culture. I, I've got to believe it's something genetic we've got going because it's so universal to take it out on the person who's the bearer of bad news. And often people who do bring bad news that is probably true do get assaulted. And so I'm very concerned about them. Um, you mentioned there as well about Francis, the, the, the woman's name who exposed the thalidomide scandal. Francis Kelsey. Francis Kelsey. There's a few things about that. You use the word saint and I know you come from a Roman Catholic background. So is the Roman Catholic background sneaking in there a little bit? It is. I mean, you know, the reason I use that is because, as I'm sure you know, when you grow up Roman Catholic, you're told who your patron saint is. But one of the nice things I think about Catholicism is that even though you technically have a patron saint, you can also sort of pick which saints it is you relate to. And Francis Kelsey never became a saint in the Catholic Church. But to me, she's the person I think of when I think of having led an exemplary life. So I find her, she's, you know, to me, a secular saint, but to me, she's very human. And part of the part of the struggle I always had with Catholicism was that the people who were sainted were at some level unrelatable. They were meant to be relatable because a lot of them had the story of, you know, crappy life and then something happens and then they have a revelation and they lead a good life. Reality is otherwise, right? We all, as we get older, start to figure out the things that are good and things that are bad and what, what we should be doing. But another thing, I mean, that bothered me about the Catholic pantheon of saints. And I noticed this early in my life, cause I complained to my mother about it is that the standard male story is he sleeps around, he drinks, he gambles, he steals, and then he has the moment and he becomes a saint. This typical story for the female saint is she's a virgin. She's a good girl. She's a virgin. She gets raped. And then she becomes a saint, right? So there's no option for the woman to have the shit life and then end up as the saint. Um, I think the reality of the people that I think of as my patrons, emotional, moral patrons, are people like Galileo and people like Francis Kelsey, who are real people who were sometimes no doubt difficult and no doubt, you know, tough on their families and no doubt wrong. And they're the people who persevered trying to do something a little bigger than themselves and trying to do it for a reason that I think had to do with the hope that they could sort of elevate humanity in some small way. I mean, Galileo was a probably a bit of an egoist. Um, Francis Kelsey was not, from what I've read of her and heard of her. But these are people who I think of as guiding me in the, the remembrance that it doesn't get easier, right? It doesn't get simpler. And in the book, I tell the story of E.O. Wilson, when Edward Wilson, when he spoke to me about what had happened with him with Stephen Jay Gould. That was such a revelatory interview for me because I realized his life hadn't gotten easier. You know, this is somebody who's famous and at Harvard and everything. And I finally realized nobody's life really gets easier when they're seeking the truth. It never it never gets simple. It's always difficult. You can take breaks, but it's always going to be hard. And we can tell sweet stories about, you know, the journey is the point, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, it's, it's just difficult. Life is hard. And it's hard for people who succeed, too. 
Is it hard for you in the aftermath of Galileo's middle finger? And I mean, certainly your work with the Intersex Association in North America. Do you feel like you ha- you did accomplish something there? Is there is is there always the next thing to accomplish, or has th- have things kind of eased off now? No, I, I kind of feel like I fail spectacularly over and over again. Um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I mean, intersex surgeries are still going on. You know, life in academia has probably gotten worse since Galileo's middle finger was published. Not better. It certainly it provides people solace, and that well, I think what I've done well is to provide people witnessing, and that doesn't just include the people I've literally written about, but the people to whom I've brought those stories, who then feels witnessed by reading the stories of other people who have been through something similar. And it's that, to be honest, it's that witnessing that I feel like is the thing that I've done that has a, that has succeeded. But in terms of social change, oh my God, I feel like I've completely failed over and over again. I don't think anything I've done has changed any system at all, ever, anywhere. And, you know, even locally, I mean, I would have thought that locally I could have maybe changed this government that's a small town government. We have 20,000 permanent residents, 50,000 when we add in the students who live here nine months of the year. You would think if you relentlessly report in a small town government, you could at least improve the government. But I don't feel like we've done that. I feel like all I do is watch a new group come in and make mistakes that are purely human, typical mistakes. They go through the same damn process over and over again. It's really like watching the movie Groundhog's Day over and over again. One of my reporters who's young but wise calls it the city of good intentions. And that's how it feels. It's like I watch all these people come into office with good intentions And then they're just up against these systems that are incredibly difficult to understand and change. And it just feels honestly just hopeless. And all I can do is, you know, hope that at least I'm providing some system for witnessing pain. And I know that to be true because my, my neighbor who lives 40 feet behind me, um, his wife died at home a few weeks ago of cancer And he called me and he said, you know, would you do an obituary for our newspaper, which is the newspaper I run for about her. And so I, you know, interviewed him and did an obituary. And I've known her and him for 20, how long have we lived here? 22 years. It was really hard to do. But I did it because a lot of people knew her and needed, they needed to be witnessed in their pain. And that was something I could do for him and something I could do for our neighbors and our large circle of people who in the town who knew her. Her name was Elaine Natoli and his name is Joe Natoli. And, you know, I wrote this thousand word obituary, which is really mostly him remembering her as a person and a few other people remembering her as a person. And um, it's that kind of thing where I feel like, well, there I do a little bit of good, you know, is that witnessing. And people like you who read Galileo's Middle Finger, I think they do it because they feel at some gut level that somebody's understanding them. And that's where I feel like I've achieved something is just saying to somebody like you, you're not alone. Mm. It's, I think it helps people to question the systems that you're talking about as well. And to to question any authority like i there was one article that i read that you wrote in the chronicle of higher education i think actually and you said about democracy 
and the importance of being able to question authority. But your point about witnessing is really interesting because it's kind of about seeing people like you use that phrase there. So that with the intersex association, you you saw the problems that were happening and that helped the people who are supposed. But I, you know, I think that things will change. I find it hard to believe. Has nothing changed? It feels very incremental. I mean, a little bit of little things have changed. So the Lurie Children's Hospital at uh, Northwestern has apologized for doing surgeries on children, taking away sexual tissue without their consent before they could consent for social reasons. Um, Harvard, Boston Children's has done a little something similar, and that's been due to the recent work of um, intersex activists like uh, Pigeon Pagonis. And I think that those are significant, but I'm not persuaded that those systems have really changed dramatically in terms of helping the families where they really need help. So it's, and it's not because the physicians are ill-intentioned, it's because they're very well-intentioned. That That's part of the great difficulty in the universe is, you know, we love these stories that have good and evil, you know, the, the, the allies versus the Nazis or the Jedis versus the dark forces. We love these stories because it allows us to believe that the evil in the world, the bad things in the world are all enacted at the hands of terrible people. And it's very easy to recognize who the terrible people are. And all you have to do is slay the terrible people. And there's no hesitancy in slaying the terrible people because why wouldn't you slay terrible people? And then you clean the world and the world is clean. And the ugly, rotten truth of the universe is that most of the terrible things that happen in the world, the bad acts, the harm, occur by at the hands of people who don't think they're doing anything wrong, who have an internal logic or are caught in systems that have their own logic, and they're they're not doing it out of evil, and they're not evil people. And so you can't just spot them easily and slay them. In fact, you have to convince them that they've done something wrong, which is the hardest thing to do. It is so difficult. I discovered over and over again in talking to people who are doctors um, doing intersex surgeries that when I would talk to them with ethical criticisms of what they were doing, they kept saying to me, but I'm not a bad person. And I kept saying, I don't understand why we're having that conversation. We're not talking about you, right? We're talking about what you're doing. But they kept hearing it as a critique of the self, and they couldn't understand that I was saying a bad act was occurring, but not at the hands of a bad person. That didn't make sense in their universe because they're taught these silly, simple stories of good and evil. And it's it's quite difficult to change the world when you have the world being told over and over and again these simple stories of good and evil. It's much more difficult to have to pause and recognize in ourselves the bad things that we do out of good intentions or out of loyalties or out of the need to get our careers a little farther down the road and protect ourselves or protect our families or protect our health insurance or our income or whatever it is. It's much more difficult. So I've really come to believe that what courage looks like is not the standard image of courage. What, What courage looks like is being willing to risk relationships that matter to you. 
to do something important for the larger whole. And it's, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. I mean, it's, you know, it's something I've done again and again and broken relationships with people who are very important to me. And I'll tell you, I don't expect the average person to do it. It's, it's terrible. I mean, I think it's probably only my ex-Catholic guilt that makes me keep walking into the fan blades. I'm sure there's something wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't life be nice if we could spot the Nazis? So, you know, one of my greatest achievements in teaching, I have to tell you, was at the end of a course where we had looked at eugenics and looked at the way that, you know, eugenics had a real logic to it. And, and we'd looked at so much harm in medicine, things that had been done to women, horrible things that had been done to women in the history of medicine, horrible things to poor people, to immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. All, almost much of it enacted at the hands of people who thought they were doing good for the world. And at the very end of it, one of my students who was Jewish, who in fact wore a yarmulke all the time, um, said to me, he was an MD student earning his MD at Northwestern. He said to me, so what you're saying is the Nazis maybe didn't think they were Nazis. And I said, that's exactly it, right? The logic on the part of the people doing evil has its own logic. It has its own power, its own set of loyalties. And loyalty has this strange way of feeling very righteous, very morally righteous, Loyalty feels extremely morally righteous. And so it's very easy to confuse loyalty with courage. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you think loyalty is connected to then the need or the want for for us as humans to belong and to, to be part of groups? Yes. And that's, I'm sure, a survival instinct. I'm sure it's absolutely a survival instinct to be loyal and to be persuaded that the outgroup is the enemy and is evil and is bad and must be killed, right? It allows us to draw upon these deep-seated instincts and to be completely morally confused. Um, and it's, it's, it's much harder in a civilized society to recognize that what what ethics and what morality looks like is something that's pretty non-instinctual. But it's why we have to teach children how to behave because we wouldn't have to teach children how to behave if it were not for the fact that instinct gets in the way of being good. Right. I mean, I had to teach my son how to behave himself Mm. and it was difficult as with any child to convince them. I can (laughs) still remember. I think my son doesn't hate me too much for telling this story, but when my son was four years old, he, kicked me really hard. And I said, you know, go to your room and come out when you're, when you willing to say you're sorry. And I stuck him in his room and slammed the door. And I said, again, you can come out when you say you're sorry. For 45 minutes, he screamed through the door. I don't have enough energy to say, I'm sorry. (laughs) 45 (laughs) minutes screaming. I don't have enough energy to say, I'm sorry. And as I listened to this, you know, and I could laugh about it because fortunately my spouse was home. If my spouse hadn't been home, it would have been one of those single parenting moments where you throw your head through the window. But I could laugh. About it. And as I was listening to it, I thought, I know what he's saying. What he's saying is it takes a lot of energy to be morally accountable. It takes a lot of energy to admit that you've really hurt somebody you love And so when he's yelling, I don't have enough energy to say, I'm sorry, what he was really saying, he's right, right? He's this little kid was right. It was, I don't, I don't have enough energy to admit to myself that I'm being a shit towards somebody I love and somebody I depend on. And so I'm just going to reject, reject, reject the moral accountability. You know, I tried reasoning with him. I tried through the door saying, you know, you're spending a lot of energy yelling. Why don't you spend a little bit of energy taking a moment and recognizing you actually are sorry and say you're sorry. And he just kept yelling at me. So eventually he calmed down and he figured out as four-year-olds who are bright will do that he could say he was sorry and not really mean it. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, I'm sorry. And I realized, oh, he's learned the next step in human development lying. (laughs) But I think he actually, at some point, I think at some point he did feel it. (laughs) He recognized he didn't want to be in the room again. So when you you were talking about your son earlier and Galileo's middle finger and uh, that you dedicated the book to Kepler who saved his mother 
at that time, was it like turmoil in your life when you were writing this? Was it a really difficult time in your life? I'm not sure there's been an easy time in my life, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that book was really hard. It was, it's really true that it, it turned into this postmodern moment where I really felt like the book was writing me, where I felt like I was writing this book and I had to finish the research and the research kept taking me down paths that were incredibly difficult paths. And I had to go there because I had committed to this story. And it was really strange. It was very much like the narrative was driving my life as opposed to the other way around. And I didn't know where the narrative was going. And so it was, um, it's particularly difficult because, you know, when you're doing the active part of the journey, you're at your desk and you're doing the research, you have a sense of purpose. But when you're lying in your bed late at night and you're trying to figure out, will this book ever end? It's much harder to understand where the hell it's all going. And it was, it took me a long time to understand sort of where, especially the third part of the book about dexamethasone. And, and that's by the way, why I talked to Francis Kelsey's daughter, because I was working on a prenatal drug that I think was causing harm. And, so Francis Kelsey had done that and I felt, and Francis Kelsey had enact her work had enacted all these protections for pregnant women that were failing in the case I was studying. So it felt very disturbing to me. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to Francis Kelsey's daughter was to tell her I'm working on this thing that I think if your mother knew about it would be horrified. And she agreed that if, you know, if her mother knew about what I was uncovering, that it was very disturbing. So that, that part of the book was especially difficult to understand what did it have to do with the rest of the story? Because a lot of people in the sciences wanted me to sort of stop two thirds of the way through this and simply tell the story of leftist activists who attack scientists who are brave. But that to me was not the whole story because a critical part of the story was the importance of activism towards criticizing researchers. I didn't want to give up the idea that the corrective system in the world required not just researchers being brave, but activists questioning researchers' work in order to make sure that we have some accountability of research. And so I didn't want to give up on the side of advocacy. And that third part of the book really caused me to live that very intensely in terms of being um, somebody who is positioned as an enemy of biomedicine, which was a real disturbing position to be in. And I didn't feel I was an enemy of biomedicine. I felt I was a champion of it by holding it accountable. So the third part of that book was um, an extremely, I mean, they, they were all difficult parts. The Bailey book controversy absolutely upended my life. I mean, when they when they took over my Google rankings completely back when it was easier for them to do this, the people who were against me, they completely reconstituted my identity, completely reconstituted it to something that was unrecognizable to me. We just need to pop in and just explain the drug that was given to pregnant mothers that was in an attempt to to um, to prevent the baby being intersex. Yes, prevent intersex development. Yeah. And then the other thing, the Bailey book controversy was about Michael Bailey, who wrote the book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. Is that what it was called? Yes. And by the way, dexamethasone is now the drug being used to treat COVID-19 in many cases. So it's a drug that it's the same drug. And when when my family, you know, my husband who had lived through this with me, my son who had lived through this with me, 
on myself when we heard that what was what was being now used to treat COVID-19 was dexamethasone. We like all went like, oh my God, what a weird situation that that this drug has come back, you know, and is now saving people's lives. But I mean, dexamethasone is a generic steroid and it, it's been used to treat a lot of things for many years. It's a very effective drug. The, the question is whether or not it's safe in pregnant women. Um, but yes, so that's dexamethasone. And then the Bailey book controversy was over Michael Bailey publishing this book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, in which he engaged some very controversial ideas about transgenderism, particularly among a subset of people who begin their lives as uh, biological males and become women. So yes, that was that controversy. And that those, those folks, there was a group of uh, transgender activists, a small group who came after me for publishing um, what had happened in the Bailey book controversy and upended my life. And that was very disruptive and disturbing. And then what happened was um, I published that and they came after me and pretty much <laughs> destroyed my identity online. And then I had the choice of like backing away and trying to reconstitute myself in some other realm or trying to understand what just happened. And being somebody who's a scholar and somebody who tends to be kind of ballsy and doesn't like it when people try to beat me up, I went for the latter. And so I got a, I applied for a Guggenheim fellowship and got one and that was to write this book. And then I started setting out and interviewing other academics, mostly academics who were progressive, politically progressive scientists themselves but who had been attacked by progressive activists of one sort or another for the work that they were bringing forward. So issues in rape, um, issues in race, uh, issues in um, genetics, these kinds of things. And so I was interviewing them and bringing forward their stories. And then the second big story that I took on was the controversy over Napoleon Chagnon and his work with the Yanomama people, where Chagnon and the geneticist James Neal were accused of um, purposeful genocide, of using a measles vaccine to infect the Yanomama people, which is completely false. Um, in fact, Neal was bringing in the vaccine to try to save lives. And it's, it was very well documented before I got to that story. But the part of the story I was interested in was the American Anthropological Association, which I showed for years, knew that the truth was Chagnon was not guilty of what he was being accused of, but that had relentlessly gone after the man. And so that was a very intense, um, that took a year. That story alone took a year of research and, you know, again, thousands of sources and hundreds of interviews trying to understand what had happened there. And that was very intense because Chagnon was a very Galilean figure, very masculine, very um, egotistical, very much convinced that if he simply spoke the truth over and over again, that truth would come out. And that wasn't working for him, the truth. <laughs> In fact, that was not working for him. Mm. I think, you know, you know, he, you said that he learned or that people learned that the truth doesn't necessarily come out, but maybe it does in time. Maybe, you know, with Galileo, didn't he die when he's still under house arrest? Yes. But now we all, we talk about him. That's why we have his finger. Yeah. <laughs> So the reason Galileo's middle finger is on a on a little plinth under some glass in the um, now the Galilean Museum it used to be at the um, at the Afuzi Museum the science part, but the reason we have that is because he was buried in a plain grave because he was out of favor with the church when he died he was under house arrest and out of favor, so he died and was buried in a very dull way, and it was only about a hundred years later where they uh, realized he was right and people had come to recognize that the Copernican system was closer to the correct system than the old system. 
that they dug Galileo back up and buried him in this very fancy tomb in the Basilica de Santa Croce in Florence. And while they dug him up, one of his fans cut off a few of his fingers to keep as relics because these were sort of, I mean, that's what you did with famous people as with saints. You sort of kept body parts as relics. And so that's why we have it because he was, because he died out of, in shame. That's exactly why we still have his finger on display. I love that it's his middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) I totally love that it's his middle finger. Yeah. It's the best. (laughs) And so tell us now about the, the then you you went from Galileo's middle finger and you got into journalism. And I was just looking at your website earlier today. So it's East Lansing Info. Do you call it Eli yes. for short? Eli, correct. And there, there seems to be a big move. You need more readers to provide money. Is it challenging financially? Yeah, it's no different from every other local newspaper or regional or national newspaper that the economics don't work anymore. Um, so, you know, it's... It's not meant to be my life project, and I'm hoping to get people, my current editors, settled in enough that I can actually take a sabbatical or leave in the next year and go back to other work. There's some other books I want to be working on, and I haven't been able to because the newspaper sort of swallowed me whole during the pandemic. Um, but yes, so as as you, I'm sure, know, you know, 25 years ago, the way newspapers survived was, and certainly 30 and 40 years ago, was people did good journalism. And if they did good journalism, then people paid for the newspaper. And advertisers were happy to advertise because people were going to read those newspapers. And so the advertisers could reach readers that way. And so there was an economic system that was quite robust. It allowed for advertising to be successful and for readers to direct pay for what they were reading. And, you know, during Watergate, for example, when the Washington Post or the New York Times came out with a new fantastic story, people went and paid for that paper and that went into the system. And so there was an automatic feedback loop for good journalism. Then came the Internet, where everybody expected to get their music for free and their art for free and their movies for free and their news for free. And the consequence of that is that it's just totally gutted the journalistic economic system. People don't want to pay for news. And in addition to that, advertising does not um, bring in enough money to make any difference at all, because the fact is that online advertising pays very poorly. So the consequence of all of that is that there's no economic system to support news. So when I founded the news organization that I did, I actually started it in 2012 in the middle of Galileo's middle finger because I was upset that people weren't watching our city council and knowing what was going on. It was simply a citizen news brigade where a bunch of us would just bring reports and bring it to a website that was maintained for free. But it became clear that we couldn't maintain that without somebody being in charge of it. So I had to raise enough money to pay somebody to be in charge. So I switched it over to become a nonprofit organization a corporation that's nonprofit recognized by the government as a nonprofit charity, like a lot of public radio, public news is. And so it's now a nonprofit corporation. And in 2014, I relaunched it and I asked people for money and so that we could pay our managing editor. So we started paying people and paying reporters a little bit. And today it's a very successful local news organization, but the consequences, the costs have gone up. It's not that much. It only takes about $200,000 a year to run this entire operation for a city, which is astonishing if you think about it. But it's very difficult to get people to donate because people feel that news should be free and they feel it should magically come to them with no cost. And so I have to, this is the time of year where I have to remind our readers, and I do it quite aggressively, that you know, if you want somebody watching school board and telling you what happened or watching city council and telling you what happened or doing the kind of heavy duty investigative reporting that I and a few other people at the organization do, 
you have to put some money in. We have to pay for server space. We have to pay for photography. We pay for editing and proofing. You know, it costs money. We have to pay the person who does payroll. We have to pay the person who keeps track of the donations. I have to pay an accountant who helps me do the tax forms that are required by nonprofit corporation. It costs money. So about 90% of the money we bring in, we actually use to pay local people to bring the news, which is a fantastically efficient organization. But even we struggle to do it. And all over the world, but certainly all over America, local news is absolutely failing all over the place. And the consequence of that is nobody knows what's going on locally. They they may think they do because they hear sirens and the local news station will tell you when somebody's been shot, but they won't tell you when your government is screwing up the pension. So basically support local journalism wherever you are in the world, I think is probably the important thing. Yes. And, I, and you know, Give them feedback, too. And if there's something that you feel they're doing wrong, let them know, but still send them money and so that you can have a corrective system. I think one of the things we run into is people feel if they think we've gotten one story wrong, they pull all of their support. And I'm like, oh, come on. I mean, imagine if, you know, you gave up on the entire profession of medicine because you ran into one cranky nurse, right? Like you can't give up on a whole system because now and then somebody does something wrong, provide them the feedback, but then provide them the economic support. Because otherwise what we end up with is systems that are very unsafe, democratically, physically unsafe, really it's scary. Mm, yeah. Um, you mentioned there about you have other books that you're that you'd like to get to. I'm dying to know what they are <laughs> or what's the topic. I can't tell you because they're such good topics. I don't uh, want to give them away. Okay, but yeah. <laughs> but I, will, I will say one of them is about doing local news, but it's not really a book about that. It's a book about human nature um, because I really feel like what I've learned in the last six years of running a local news organization and tangling with the people who are our city leaders and the people who are our readers is that it's really hard as a community to work towards truth and justice that it, it's like, it's like a little sweet postscript to Galileo's middle finger about what it looks like at the local level to try to quest for reality and how hard it is to take care of each other in small groups because Galileo's middle finger is about big national work. And then, it's this may sound paradoxical, but at some level, it's easier to do big national work that is disruptive. The hardest place to look for and bring truth is actually the small local stuff where the relationships are the most intense and the most tender. When I had to, for example, quit my job in Northwestern, that was really heartbreaking because I had to end um, seeing my colleagues regularly there and especially hard for me was giving up teaching. I loved teaching medical students about the history of medicine and trying to help them understand that maybe some of the Nazis didn't think they were Nazis um, and that kind of thing, you know, things that I think would, would shape them, as, especially, I mean, because I taught history of epidemics and pandemics and I think, and they're writing me now saying, Oh my God, I'm completely remembering what we, what we learned. And they're, they're living the history. I, help them understand. And that's so exciting. So that was all very hard. But honestly, the hardest thing I've really learned is doing small, doing hard news in a small town means constantly upsetting everybody. And yet not doing it means letting people think everything's okay when everything's not okay. You know, as we look, we've really found that our police department disproportionately stops black 
people, especially black men. And that's, we have a very progressive town that likes to think it smells very good. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, we're absolutely disproportionately stopping black men. Um, we look at where the money goes in terms of money that's supposed to be going to poverty. And in fact, it's not going to poverty in East Lansing. It's going to developers a lot of the time, wealthy developers. So I'm in a town that thinks it's so, you know, righteously good left. And I have to constantly tell it, ah, if you look at the details, it's a lot uglier. And it makes, it's upsetting. I mean, it's upsetting. And so it's a, it's a, it's the post Galileo's middle finger story of uh, what happens if you bring a town a newspaper. Mm. Well, it's kind of like what you're saying. It, it, it's there's it all these levels. So it's the national level, then there's the local level, and then there's the 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 individual level, which is what yes. you were re- referring to earlier. Which is, you know, we don't have this line between good and evil that's so easy to see in our. You know, it's not. It's in ourselves, really, isn't that the thing? That's the famous quote. Like, I don't remember who says it, but. And that that's what's, you know, so funny to me is because people say to me, like, what the hell ties all of your career together? And to me, it's all very logical. Like, it's all about this problem of how do we be good? It's all about this, this problem. And for me, it's a post-Catholic problem, right? Like, so for my family, the part of my family that is still very Roman Catholic, my parents are still very Roman Catholic. My sister is a nun, as well as being a physician. So my sister is a conservative Catholic nun. And she looks just like me. We look just alike. It's really funny when people see us together because we're so different at the surface level. Although together, both of us, I think, are constantly struggling every day with this question of how do you be good? And for her, it's a little easier, right? She has a dogmatic system that tells her what that looks like. Although she struggles within that dogmatic system to understand, you know, how do you be a good person in a modern world? It's hard. Um for me, I don't have I don't have a system of dogma. I don't have a system of theology. So for me, it's the question of, as a person who's a reality based atheist, how do I think about being good in the world? Because it still matters to me. I, I'm not a nihilist. Um, I'm definitely an optimist. I'm a bitter optimist. I really believe we can do better. So for me, it's every day the question of how do we try to do better in a world that doesn't have a God taking care of it for us. And I think Galileo at some level was there too. I mean, I think he probably really was still a believer, a religious believer when he died. But I think at some level he was struggling with that question of how do we try to, how do we try to know what's true in the world? And the truth is at some level, a moral truth. Mm. Does the, the truth, the moral truth, the good, or like ascertaining what is the good. And do you have an answer? What, what is the good? Is the good always the truth? I don't think so. My my mother, when I was like 16 years old and I was very much leaving the church, and I think my mother picked up on that without so much as knowing it. I think she was picking up on it. She said something very useful to me, which is, she said, forget all the dogma. What it means to be good is to be good to others. And I thought, okay, that's pretty simple. That's just the golden rule, right? Do unto others. And I think generally the golden rule gets you 99% of the way there. <laughs> do do for other people what you would wish them to do for you gets you 99% of the way there. And that's why so many of the world's religions take us to that spot. Um, but the reality of what that looks like can be a struggle. And is is the truth always the good? No, right? Like white lies exist because they're really helpful. 
they're healing. White lies are often avoiding pain that's unnecessary pain. Mm. And recognizing that there's just so much you can do in the world. Recognizing humility is, I think, part of trying to be good. And it's very, very hard um, to recognize your humility and still get up and do anything. Because once you recognize your humility, once you recognize how ineffective you are really in the world, it's hard to do anything and feel like you're going to get somewhere. So the struggle of intellectual humility is, I think, part of the big struggle towards the good. Knowing, knowing we don't know. That's the scientific method, really, isn't it? Isn't it the questioning? Yes, knowing, knowing that we don't know is so important. And and it's part of where the humanities drives me crazy right now because so much of what's written in the humanities has a hubris to it that is troubling to me that assumes we understand the motivations of various actors you know this this business of looking back and condemning people because they were racist and sexist and et cetera et cetera it's too easy it's just too easy it's it has a a real arrogance to it that I think fails that always makes the past bad and the present therefore good. And if the present were good, it wouldn't be so bloody hard. (laughs) The truth is the present is very difficult. It's very hard to know what the right thing to do is day to day in our universe. My husband was reading to me yesterday from a, a report Oh my God, that was about plastics showing up in placentas and showing up in fetuses, you know, and the fact that we have introduced so much plastics into the world and now it's just getting into our babies before they're born and doing to them heaven knows what. And the amount of plastics we've introduced into and toxins into the world and just disrupting our entire world for our children and our children's children in these ways, because you know, we like to drink out of straws and we like to be have a convenient water bottle that's a plastic water bottle and all of that stuff. And I think, you know, <laughs> how am I supposed to think about this in terms of my own easy life as a consumer of whatever I feel like buying that's not too expensive, right? I, it, just things like that. You can't become completely immobilized by the fear of introducing plastics into your neighbor's placenta. But at the same time, to not think about the ways that our everyday acts impact the people around us, the people who made those things and the people who come after us is just, it feels like we've never learning. Just, we never learn. It's, it's really troubling. You were the first person who, uh, from me, who raised the flag about COVID. It was January. <laughs> 2020 and you tweeted and you were tweeting to your ex-students and I read your tweet and I was like oh my god need to get food need to get basics in and other people thought I was mad at the time but like it was it was you so it was it was from the history of academic or epidemics not academics the history of epidemics then so what's going to happen next do you think (laughs) well so one of the things that I taught for years and years and years was the history of SARS-1 which was COVID from before And um, people knew it as SARS, Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And I taught that history. I taught a book that was specifically a compilation of um, amazing essays written by, I think it was called SARS in Context. 
And it was um, people writing as emergency room physicians, epidemiologists, uh, nurses, uh, people in the government who were having to make decisions. And it's an incredibly powerful compilation talking about the way that SARS played out. And the big lesson of that book, people, multiple people involved in SARS said, we got lucky. They said, it will, this will come again. We just got lucky. This burned out for some reason. And we did what we could to reduce transmission. But for some reason, this burned out and the next one won't. And they said there will be another coronavirus. And it will be much more powerful in terms of spread. And so I was teaching that book for years and waiting for, frankly, the next SARS because I knew it would come. And I also knew it was possible to have a 1918 pandemic flu kind of come through. So I thought that was possible. I didn't think Ebola would take off because Ebola has the um, Ebola burns very fast. And so it burns out. So I didn't think Ebola was. So when Ebola was spreading, I thought it would still be contained. But then we were watching um, COVID-19 take off in China and the news out of China from journalists was they're lying, that China was lying about how bad it was. And that in fact, it was much worse than they were letting on. And I trust journalists when they tell me the government is lying and they're good journalists to be telling me the truth. So I was watching that and then I was watching the numbers and I was watching the spikes and I was thinking about global travel and the ways that global travel is so easy right now. And by the time we got to about January, my husband, who's an internal medicine physician and a medical school dean, and I started looking at each other saying, we think this is the one. And in fact, in January, I think it was before I tweeted it, he and I went out and bought a bunch of masks because we, to be perfectly selfish, wanted to make sure we had masks ready before people started panic buying. So we went out. Um, we we opened our old epidemic boxes, which are boxes of food that we have in the basement and cleaned that out and basically gave a lot of that to a food bank because it was starting to be food that were not. Well, also, I had developed other food allergies in the meantime, so some of it I could no longer eat. We bought some food and then we bought toilet paper because I know people panic by toilet paper, <laughs> which they do. And uh, And then I started tweeting about it because I thought this, I can't be sure, but I think this is probably coming. And I also was talking to my friend, Andrew Neumer, who I've never met, but it was a Twitter friend and he's an epidemiologist at University of California, Irvine. And he was looking at the same numbers and the same reports. And we were saying to each other, this is the one. And so we, st- I started tweeting, you know, now is the time. And I was reminding my students, remember what I taught you. And one of the things I taught them was all the things that happened during epidemics that we develop a xenophobia, fear of foreigners, that we Rich people think it won't happen to them, but it will happen to them, that healthcare workers will sometimes be very brave and sometimes be very selfish and hide, um, that we, we see these things, that this will hit people on the margins harder than people in this, who have more privilege, but that everybody will be hit. And, you know, I was watching the numbers at Johns Hopkins and they were just barely taking off. But I thought, no, based on what's happening worldwide, this is really bad. And and also just based on the contagion level, that it was a very contagious disease was significant. So that's why I thought this could be. But honestly, I I couldn't predict what was going to happen. I, I will tell you, I pulled my parents' money out of the stock market because I thought chances are good we're going to see an economic crash. And they're old enough that I need the money to help them with AIDS. Um, I was, I was, look, I pulled my son's uh, um, college accounts out of the stock market and put it safely away. 
um, because I was watching and I know what happens economically during these things. Economically, it's very disruptive and very unpredictable. And the stock markets continue to go up, but I do not believe it will continue to do so. I think we're going to struggle economically for years and that what will kill people next is the poverty that will come after the COVID because we will see widespread poverty and then we will see famine and we will see death from poverty next. Um, it's it was a it was not unpredictable. When the people who dealt with SARS one said it would happen, and they were right. They were right that the same virus would come back in a different form and it would get us. And they were right. And so I was not that surprised when it turned out to be a SARS virus, you know, a, a COVID. Any predictions for are, are the vaccines going to work? Will that deal with this? Or yeah, I think the vaccines will work, and I'm super excited. It's amazing to see how fast they were developed. I mean, it's astonishing. Like. Well, it's like I tweeted recently, humans have reached a point in their history where they can kill themselves and save themselves at astonishing rates. We can we can hurt ourselves and help ourselves now at this incredibly fast cycle. And we've never seen that historically before. So, yeah, I think the vaccines will work. I'm excited about um, getting one. I'm 54, so I'll be somewhere down the line, but um, I'll be sooner than my son gets one. Um I think people will be skeptical about the vaccine and the people who are skeptical and refuse the vaccine will be disproportionately hurt out of that belief that the vaccines are somehow dangerous or implanting chips or whatever it is. That's really unfortunate, but sometimes there's no convincing people not to be suspicious. And I, I understand suspicion. I wrote a piece for um, new statesman about vaccine anxiety and vaccine skepticism a few years ago and talked about, you know, my own anxiety, bringing my son in for one shot after another shot after another shot and knowing vaccines work, but also having this maternal feeling of like, how many times is this kid going to be stuck with a needle and given something that I'm not totally confident about every time? Because vaccine reactions happen. They're rare, but they happen. And so I, I wrote this piece about that to explain I'm not anti-vaccine, but I completely relate to people who feel scared sometimes, especially about their children getting lots and lots of vaccines. So... Yeah, the vaccines will work and we'll, it's not going to be easy because it's not going to be simple to just wipe it out. We don't know how many people will still get it. Some people will still get it. It'll, we already know there's mutations happening. Probably the vaccines they're saying will cover the mutations, which is great. But, you know, diseases will keep coming at us. We, we're a very mobile world now. And being such a mobile world makes disease contagion containment extremely difficult really, really difficult. My family has been able to bubble and we took bubbling very seriously from very early on because I don't think I'm special. I think I'll get COVID if I go out in the world and I have a very stupidly reactive immune system. So I don't want to find out what happens to me if I get COVID, but it will be very ironic if I end up taking dexamethasone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Although I won't be pregnant. I can guarantee you I won't be pregnant if I'm taking dexamethasone. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Spokes. Hope you enjoyed it. We're back outdoors again. We're on the top of a hill and it started to snow. You were telling me some interesting things about the podcast charts. Oh yeah, we charted in Iceland last week and several other European countries over the last few months. 
Uh, our highest listenership is in the States, the United of America States. You may have heard of that place. It's very funny, isn't it? <laughs> I let that out. Okay, and we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.